there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. Argentina invaded the Falkland Islands in March, and it surrendered to England by June. The AT&T monopoly was ordered to be broken up in the U.S. Channel 4 launched in the U.K., while Epcot and USA Today launched stateside. And in news that would influence the rest of the decade, the U.S. recession got underway with Ronald Reagan firmly at the helm. And if you don't remember any of that, that's fine. We bet you at least remember the 10 best films of 1982, and that's what we are here to talk about today. I'm Drew McQueenie. Welcome to a very special episode of 80s All Over, where I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Weinberg. I'm Drew McQueenie, joined by my co-host, Scott Weinberg. <laughs> and Drew, not only am I sad that 1982 is closing, I am sorry that 1983 is starting. <laughs> but... <laughs> Before, you know, out there, there's a whole cadre of people who are like, man, stop it with 1983. It's my favorite year. Just all right. Here's a tiny little sneak preview. 3D came back briefly in 1983. Yes, Look, there was the right stuff. Yes, there was Terms of Endearment. Yes, there were some damn good movies. But overall, I, I contend that 1983, not I, a great film. I can sum it up for you, Scott. There's two James Bond movies and they both suck. So here we go. When looking back towards a certain year, I think you and I have decided that only three criteria matter. And no other criterion. How much money did a film make? What Oscars did it get? What did you and I think of it? <laughs> That's it. If it doesn't appear on one of those three lists, then it does not exist. We are hereby striking it from the record, and it will be gone forever. Okay, so we are going to start with the 10 biggest grossing films of the year. Number 10, with 57 million, yeah. Drew's favorite musical of all time, John Huston's Annie. a big hit for them but considering how much we learned that those film rights cost uh was that as big a hit as they were looking for like i don't know 57 million for annie hey drew if you're going in descending order what comes after 10 uh number nine which is also a musical before you say the title how much did it gross (laughs) a wildly appropriate 69 million dollars ladies and gentlemen it's that vast little whorehouse (laughs) in texas it's just a little bitty pissant country place. Nothing much to see. No drinking allowed. We get a nice quiet crowd. Plain as it can be. It's just a bitty spot. No time country place. Nothing too high. I'm sorry. I'm 11 years old. So No, I'm 11. I noticed it. <laughs> um, number eight. A haunted house movie. Directed the by haunted Toby. house movie for many people. Directed by Toby Hooper. 
produced by Steven Spielberg. It is Poltergeist. Number seven was... Uh, Wait, the, we're not doing any commentary at all? We're just skipping? For Poltergeist? I feel like with Poltergeist, we finally got it all out of our system. Am I surprised that it was this big? No. Am I surprised it wasn't bigger, looking back at it? Actually, a little bit. Of the top ten, uh, only five films broke $100 million. And you yeah. have to assume that in 1982, $100 million was like $100 million for a group. $100, $100 million in 1982 meant that everybody saw it and everybody talked about it and it was huge. All right. Like well, that was cultural sensation level. I'm actually surprised it's not a bigger number when I look at it because that felt like it was a movie that everybody I knew saw, but maybe it was because it was so effectively scary that it was a little smaller than some of the bigger hits. Yep. Number seven at 78.8 million, Walter Hill's biggest hit, 48 Herds. And God bless it, man. I am really happy that this movie did the business it did. And it really was ground zero for what was about to happen with Eddie Murphy. Number six was the resurrection of a franchise I think a lot of people had counted out at this point. And considering this thing almost went to television, $78.9 million had to be considered a monster win for Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. If Star Trek One had been slightly more well received, this would have broke a hundred. Yeah, I, if this I, had had a foundation to build off, this could have been huge. I mean, I am—I think it's overlong and a bit too self-serious, but I am a fan of Star Trek: The Motion Picture. Yeah. But even I could imagine that a good number of people were like, "Oh, another Star Trek movie? Yeah, I, d I did that." But man, Star Trek Two is just great. It's so great. And and here's the weird thing: now we move to number five, and it's like a thirty million dollar difference. There's know, nothing. Man, it's a huge jump. It really right, is unbelievable. No, nothing in the eighty or ninety million range at all. We jump. And if from, you want to know why there are so many crappy sex comedies coming up on this show, this is why. Because number five, p -p -p Porkies. Five young boys in the nude. A police lineup so that you can identify. He's a tallywhacker. Uh, please, please, can we call it a tallywhacker? Penis is so personal. Oh, oh. Well, here's the thing, dude, and I think my theory is sound. Pornhub didn't exist in 1982. I think it was that. I think it was the 50s nostalgia, which was still very no, huge. But, no. but it was done in a different way. It was the fact that it was dirty 50s, which until then on film had not really been done. Mm, I would say 60 to 75 percent of Porky's was uh, people seeing it second and third time and people under 25. Oh, the second and third time was huge. And it was yeah. one of those that they sold on two scenes. The Lassie mm -hmm. scene. There was an entire ad campaign built around why is she making that sound? Yeah, and the PP and the whole and it's crazy how much mileage a little tiny indie nothing from Canada got based yeah. on that. You will never go broke underestimating people's affection for boobs. Now, I meant to ask you, what do your sons think of Porky's? Um, well moving on. <laughs> right, we jumped about 30 from yeah. six to five. And now we're jumping another 20. Porky's did 105. And now at number four with 124.7 is... Rocky Three.
How many times did you go to the arcade and hear Eye of the Tiger? Uh, you know, here's the weird thing. The Rocky theme, of course, is in my blood because I'm a movie nut and I'm in Philadelphia. But never been a fan of Eye of the Tiger. You know, it's everywhere. Yeah. You know, I never everywhere. Yeah. Now we move from a <laughs> film that you and I both like, Rocky Three, mm-hmm. to a film you and I both love. million for what Drew... Love lifts you up where you belong. Go. Bring it on down. Go, Carly. Where you fly. Yeah, yeah. All right, this is uh, at almost $130 almost exclusively from grown-ups, an officer, and a gentleman. Man, this is just kind of mean-spirited and ugly and not that interesting. And you nailed it. You really, I listened to that episode back, and I tell you, you uh, you elucidated me on that film. <laughs> All right. So now here's another huge jump. We go from 129.7 for an officer and a gentleman to 177. That's like 50 million jump. This I just don't understand. Like a statistician would have to explain to me why there are these giant leaps. One theory could be, that people are more than willing to go to the movies. There just weren't enough really good ones. How else do you explain the $50 million between number three and number two? You consider this is a summer where The Thing and Blade Runner both went belly up. It's clearly not just about good movies or a lack thereof. It's about they connected to the audience in some way where it became something more than just a movie. And we just recorded our review of number two. And I think it was a cultural moment. I think it was that thing where we were having a conversation anyway about men's roles and women's roles and what they were. And there was no film that year that better crystallized all of that than Tootsie. Damn, $177 million is unbelievable for a comedy. It really is. When I look at giant numbers like that, I can't help but think repeat viewings. And I think that's something, and I don't want to sound like old man in a rocking chair, get off my lawn, but I think that's kind of something that is gone now. Even like the hardcore comic book fans aren't going to see Justice League three times. My parents are not see things two or three times. We saw Tootsie twice in the theater. When everybody from a casual moviegoer to a hardcore movie fan knows that everything will be out on DVD within three at most four months, it really does kind of put a damper on. Let's see this six times, you know, four bucks a ticket. I could ask my mom while we were out, why don't we go see a movie? And it was a $4 decision for her. Now, now in the grand pantheon of this entire decade, few things are going to be more resounding, more of an impactful statement than the statistic we're about to give you. Okay. Tootsie was 177.2. Double that. Add some on. And you have number one. Double that and add, is that right? 177 (laughs) times two plus some a little bit more. Yeah. It is. I'll say the title. Drew, you give him the number. All right. E.T. the Extraterrestrial made $359 million in 1982. If the Anecdotes about like how Drew said he saw it literally 20 times or how I told you that it played at the Leo Mall twin at my neighborhood. And 
this is a conservative estimate, nine to 12 months. Yeah. I'm not kidding. It played yep. for almost a year. Th- that, oh, those are interesting anecdotes. But when we say number two was $177 million <laughs> and number one was 359 not only did everybody from two years old to 80 go see E.T., most of those people saw it again, and everybody told their friends to see it. It would be like a billion dollars today. It would you know, be. You know who is acutely aware of how much money E.T. made? The people at M&M's? John Carpenter. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Dude, this is the definition of all the oxygen getting pulled out of the room. Yeah. It was the biggest thing that had ever happened in movies. You know, to be and fair, though, I, I like my M&M's answer. I thought your M&M's was. is good, too. Yeah, I, they know it. John Carpenter knows it. Like, yo, yo, true. All right. We're like, we're, we're going to play a little improv inspired by my new favorite <laughs> podcast, The Dollop. All right. Uh, I, I'm walking into your office. You're sitting at your desk. <clears throat> Uh, hi, I, uh, I represent Steven Spielberg and Universal Pictures. We want to use M&M's candy in our upcoming film. Uh, it's called E.T. And it's about a creature that befriends a young boy. And we need a candy that kids know. We want it to be something comfortable and friendly and warm and familiar. So we want Elliot to feed M&M's to the alien. And we think the movie's going to strike a chord. We think it'll be a decent hit. So what do you think? You want a monster to eat our candy on screen? No, he's not. He's a can I, monster. Can I, see a pic, can I see a picture of the monster? We don't have. All right, here. He literally looks like he's been pooped out of another monster. I do not believe I want to see him eating Sir, our product. Have oh, you, you seen 1941? No, I'm I've, getting. I'm getting a page on my 1982 pager. It says that. Oh, the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup people just made a candy that looks just like yours. So I think I'll go across the street and offer them. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Apparently they're called, that, sir. they're called Reese's Parts, I think, and they're going to be huge. So F you, Eminem Mars. Bye-bye. And see. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, the dollop. That is what happened at Eminem Mars. We told this story, didn't we? It's crazy, though. It really is. But the next time you screw up at work and you're like, oh, my God, I totally made. I'm so sorry. That was legitimately my fault. And you feel like two feet tall. Remember, you're not the guy who threw Universal and Spielberg out of your office for Eminem's. But you're also not the guy who said yes to them for the video game adaptation. It's the video game that lets you pretend you're E.T., running away from secret agents, falling into danger, finding a phone to call home, and discovering the best thing on earth, a friend. E.T., only from Atari. I love that game. You used to, like, no matter how you would walk, once you climbed out of the hole, you would fall back in. (laughs) What's not? So how insane is that? If one guy said no to them... Would have lost his job. Another guy said yes, should have lost his job. And yeah. there really is no winning. It is nobody I know, knows anything. I know, but God, even as a 12-year-old, you're like, somebody got fired. So now we move on to the Oscars. Everywhere, theater marquees glitter. The names of people now gathering in the music center of Los Angeles County. For the 55th Annual Academy Awards. by Revlon. Revlon, the people who help make the world a little more beautiful. And GE. At GE, we bring good things to life. And the Coca-Cola Company and your local Coca-Cola bottler. For big refreshment, Coke is it. And Polaroid, makers of the unique light-mixing sun cameras and 600 high-speed film. 
This is the plaza of the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, where the public and the press cheer the arriving nominees and participants at this year's ceremonies. Gandhi is a film that uh, if I were to review it straight like tonight and watch it again with a critic's eyeballs and really analyze it, I think that I would give this film four or four and a half stars out of five. Uh, mm. Drew, Drew thinks it's shallow, a little uh, surface. I give it two, maybe. I think two? it's two and a half. Oy vey, you're killing me. So we have your picture, director, actor, actress, supporting actor, supporting actor, screenplay and screenplay. How many did Gandhi win, Drew? Out of just those, one, two, three, four of them? Best original screenplay. Mm-hmm. Ben Kingsley, best actor. Richard Attenborough, best director. And best picture. David Lean made Lawrence of Arabia. It's about an Englishman who went to another culture. To me, that makes sense. That is a movie that it's a person going to this other culture, making a movie about somebody who came into that culture. That makes sense. I, I see the connection there. Attenborough, I think, had an outside of Gandhi experience to the extent that it feels like he's patting him on the head to some extent. The movie I wish I'd seen is if they had let Satyajit Ray make this movie. Mm-hmm. And if they had made an epic in his hands for the same amount of money that allowed him to offer his perspective on that person, then I'll bet you I would be as excited about this movie as the Oscars were. Well, let's run through this real quick. Who did Ben Kingsley beat? He beat Dustin Hoffman for Tootsie. He wow. beat Jack Lemon for Missing. He beat Paul Newman for The Verdict. And he beat Peter O'Toole for My Favorite Year. Crazy. My favorite nomination is probably Peter, Peter O'Toole. O'Toole for, it is. Yeah. I was going to guess that is your yeah. favorite, right? Yeah, I, I think uh, so. That's pretty cool. Uh, these are all great. If someone put a, a virtual gun in my to my head and said, who's the best of this five? Paul Newman wins. Wow, yeah. Actor in a supporting role, winner, Lou Gossett Jr. Not only the best thing in the movie, but he deserves that award. By leaps but, and bounds. Like, yeah. it's it's he's better than that movie in a way that is one of the reasons that he got recognized. It's yeah, like, yeah. oh, my God, he's amazing. Who'd he beat, Drew? He beat John Lithgow for War According to Garp. Amazing, brave, great performance. James Mason in The Verdict. Robert frickin' Preston in Victor Victoria. Yeah. And the one you and I love dearly, Charles Durning in The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Dude, that's an amazing category. Every one of those performances is flat out terrific. Actress, leading role, Meryl Streep won for Sophie's Choice. We just got done talking about her. And even if you think the film is, uh, you know, uh, slightly overrated or over-reputized, I'm making it. It's a word, over-reputized. <laughs> um, you can't deny that her performance is stunning. It, it truly is. She beat Julie Andrews, Victor Victoria, Jessica Lang for Francis, Sissy Spacek for Missing, and Deborah Winger for Officer and a Gentleman. Uh, supporting actress, uh, Jessica Lang won for Tootsie. So again, it is the year of Streep and Lang. They both they, they both won and they both got two nominations. That's crazy, man. Uh, she beat Glenn Close for Garp, Terry Gar for Tootsie, Kim Stanley for Francis, and wow. Leslie Ann Warren for Victor Victoria. Wow, and I and love that performance. When when people say that Marissa Tomei should not have been nominated for My Cousin Vinny, I say look at Leslie Ann Warren in Victor Victoria because she they both deserve to be nominated. There's no reason that, you know, giant comedy performances that broad, are broad. And I love it when the Oscars give some credit to that kind of. See, I, I don't think Marissa Tomei should have been nominated for Vinny, but it, that's only because I think she should have been nominated for Oscar. So there we go. Uh, director Richard uh, Attenborough won for Gandhi. Here's yeah. who he beat, man. Spielberg for E.T., Pollock for Tootsie, Lumet for The Verdict. And Wolfgang Peterson for Das Boot. Bottom line, that was Spielberg's. 
that was Spielberg's that year. He made people believe in that hunk of plastic. He made people believe that it was alive. His work with the children in that movie, his work with the effect in that movie, his work to make E.T. feel like it was real is so Herculean. That thing shouldn't work at all. It barely functions as a puppet. Uh, You look at it next to the Dark Crystal shit, it's night and day. But so what you're everyone talking, uh, on the record, is E.T. a better film than Gandhi? 1,000%. Uh, adapted screenplay. The winner, missing. Which I nice. can't believe it was as big a player in nominations as it was. I'm Okay, cool. Yeah. It's not a movie that I think of at all, really, when I think of 1982. It's fine. Das Boot, Sophie's Choice, The Verdict, Victor Victoria. Uh, original screenplay, the winner was Gandhi. You'll like the nominees, except one of them. Officer and a Gentleman. Yeah. Nominated for Best Screenplay. Diner, deserving. Nice. E.T., deserving. And Tootsie. Melissa Matheson was amazing on the page. Not only were the films made from her work good, but if you are a young writer and you want to learn what a good screenplay is on the page, track down her work, because Melissa Matheson was one of our best. We'll close up with uh, Best Picture. Of course, the winner was Gandhi. It beat E.T., Missing, Tootsie, and The Verdict. See, I would have given the verdict picture, but I would have given Spielberg director. If out of the nominees, I think that's the way it would have broken down for me. You know what, Drew? You were only nine and you weren't a member of the Academy. So (laughs) suck it. All right. So, Scott, looking back at 1982, before we get to our best of, before we name the films that we each pick as our 10 favorite films from that year. Is there a film that you feel night and day different about or that you feel most differently about that surprises you? Porky's. Growing up, I would have said it's one of the few teen sex comedies that's consistently funny, and it's not. It has a couple of good moments, but it's not consistently funny. First Blood, I probably would have said basic action film. Now, as an adult, I think it's uh, got a lot more depth than I thought. I I, I don't think there's any been major sea changes on anything. For me, it was there was a movie that I I thought it was cool and well-written and I loved it and it was for this rewatch I I can't hold it together as a movie and I think we really disagreed on it but the film I feel most differently about now and I wish I loved it with the intensity I did then is Cat People I wish I wish I loved it man I want to getting naked incestuous Paul Schrader's got issues big time party size no I I, Cat People I would have bored me to tears as a kid because it's not fun horror movie. It's a See, drama. I thought I was unlocking something. I thought it was, oh man, this is grown up and this is smart. This is it. This is what good horror movie should be like. All right, so, Drew, it is man. now time for everyone's favorite when we name our top 10 films of the year. But at our producer's behest, we're going to throw out a few honorable mentions, a.k.a. great films that for whatever reason aren't quite on our top 10 list. Yep. I have four of those. Drew, how many honorable mentions do you have? It's 1982. I'm looking at a list of like 30. Oh, oh no, no. I mean, I, I literally had 26. I cut it down to like 14. And then I said to you, what did I say to you an hour ago? How many are in your top 10? And you went, yeah. oh, you thought I was kidding. I was like, no, I'm not kidding. I'm, yeah. I have 14 now. When I got down to the 10, it was only because there was a bloodletting. Movies that didn't make my top 10 that I love. Here's the thing. I love, love absolutely adore at least 30 other movies conan the barbarian which yeah, if conan is just studied my yeah. work i have written about that film in i over the dude years. i teach a class on your work at the <laughs> local car wash it's called mcweenies 
<laughs> the learning annex is there mm-hmm. yeah um, conan was like around like my nine ten and then it just kept getting bumped when i went oh oh it's one of the best movie years of our lives so you'll have to on my list for me i love it is on my list but yeah it did my my honorable mentions which i consider five star movies that just aren't in my top 10 for whatever reason diner my favorite year conan the barbarian and it's not five stars but fuck you i love it the sword and the sorcerer Movies that did not make my list that I love dearly include Tootsie, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Richard Pryor, Live on the Sunset Strip. Like you said, Diner, Conan, Star Trek right. 2. Let's move on. Ladies and yeah. gentlemen, drum roll, please, but not audibly, just in your head. I will start my number 10. That's not right. I'm moving that one up and switching it. Hold on. <laughs> that, you can't possibly be right. That could be right. That could be right. That is right. This one goes in at number <laughs> six. That's not right. That's not right. All right. There my number is. 10 is I have two Sydney Lumet films on my top 10. And number wow. 10 is Death Trap. That is a very cool choice. I certainly enjoyed my revisit of it. I'm very happy to have seen it again. And I'm really happy that people didn't, that didn't even know it existed have gone and looked at it after hearing about it on the podcast. Only if you watch it with Monsignor. Oh, God. Jesus Christ. Uh, All right. Well, number 10 for me is oddly Muncie. No, it's um, I'm sorry. I said that wrong. It's pronounced Fitzcarraldo. Ah, good choice. Fitzcarraldo is in the modern Sisyphus. It is the perfect film about the futility of art itself. The notion that we make these beautiful things that exist for a brief moment and then they're gone and we hope that people remember them or that they hold on to them. And sometimes they don't even work. But God damn it, it's the effort. And I can't think of a movie that if you especially if you double feature this with Burden of Dreams, the behind the scenes documentary we talked about, um, I can't think of a better summation of the lunacy it takes to even believe you can make a movie, much yeah. less pull it off. Good. Well said. One of my favorite things about this movie, and it's kind of relatively unique to this movie, is that the movie you're watching is almost insane as the story it's about. I tell you a story about somebody who wants to build an opera house in the middle of the Amazon jungle. You go, well, that's crazy. How would you even do that? And then you go, well, I want to make a movie that reenacts that. And you're like, well, that's crazy too because now you're doing it you don't even have the opera house mm-hmm. <laughs> all right but yeah i love Fitzcarraldo. good choice and and i would recommend you watch burden of dreams after my number nine is a lot like Fitzcarraldo in that it has a c in the title it's creep show <laughs> all right well uh well played also did not make my top 10 list, but I love Creepshow dearly. How can you not? Uh, well, um, I, it's kind of a cheat because like, well, your number nine is one movie. My number nine is like four and a third. Yep. And uh, you pack a lot of entertainment in. I, I feel like number nine for me is about pure entertainment pleasure. And this is a case where rewatching it this year, I fell in love again. It's magical. It's got a phenomenal performance and it just plain makes me happy. It's my favorite year. In order to make my top 10, first I started with like just our master list. Then I broke it down and broke it down, went back to the list. And I went, yep. it was at number eight, get, got bumped down a couple of times. It's absolutely charming. And we never really put these two together, but it would almost make a good companion piece with Diner. Well, uh, but I yeah. think they, they both capture a moment where you're, you're learning that uh, hero worship maybe isn't a great thing. Yeah. Yeah. Or if, if you do have heroes, you know, kind of keep your expectations in check and remember <laughs> that your heroes are also just 
fucked up people. Uh, Speaking of fucked up people, my number eight movie features a guy who thinks he pulls his own face off. (laughs) Drew, what is it? Uh, With Tootsie? Oh, God. Cut. (laughs) Uh, I can't work like this. Poltergeist. Uh, it is the haunted house movie of our generation, as you have yep. said. The, the characters, the parents are likable, doesn't reinvent the wheel. The whole idea is, wouldn't it be interesting if a, a gothic old haunted house, instead of being up on a giant hill out in the middle of nowhere, it was in a suburban neighborhood? That's the only coat of paint this needs. The special effects are great. The kids are great. I love the domesticity of it, and I love that it has a nasty edge. It's never too dark. But it does have like a playfully nasty streak to it, and it's exhausting. Speaking of one set piece after another, I think uh, a filmmaker that we just talked about being disappointed with in our last episode uh, may have made his very best film and certainly one of his very strongest collection of comic set pieces in the form of the wonderful Victor Victoria. Yeah, this is your number eight. This is yeah. my number eight. The The older I get, the more I can't believe Hollywood made it that year. I, I love James Garner deciding that it doesn't matter. I love Alex Karras as the gay bodyguard. Yep. I got like, and Robert Preston alone. If like, you only watch this movie for Robert Preston, you still get more than your dollar's worth. The only thing that would be better than discovering a, like a diner or a Victor Victoria or, or my favorite year is watching it for the second time and being equally delighted. That's yeah. the key. And all three of these movies, Diner, Victor, and and Favorite Year, all three of them are films that I had a quiet but firm affection for. And I'm, so many times on this podcast, these three are better than I remember. They're Much all, richer, much smarter. Yep, yep. They don't feel like there's any dust on them. Uh, all right, what's your number seven, man? I'm curious when we overlap. Have we overlapped on anything yet? You, I think you said this one didn't make your list, which makes me think you might have some kind of crazy uh, alien slug inside your ear. But my number seven, babe, is Star Trek Two. Wow. All right. Yeah. Uh, it did not make my list. I love it dearly. How um, the fuck could Star Trek Two not make your top ten list? Do I don't even know you anymore, dude? You're four films deep. I'm four films deep. We haven't overlapped yet. I'm curious how many of the same titles are going to show up on these two lists. It's stop trying that's to a change great the subject. Bob Mueller wants to know why is Star Trek <laughs> Two not on your top ten list? Uh, because I think it is a rousing adventure movie. I think there are movies that said more to me personally that year than this one did. I hope you fart all night and just can't stop. Really? Even though my number seven is John Carpenter's The Thing, you hope wow. I fart all night? I, I do. And, oh, uh, oh I that's so mean. Let's save the conversation for this because it might, might, it might come up again. I can accept that. I'm guessing that my number six also will come up again on your list. My number six is an indie sequel from Australia, and it's called... Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior. This is my number three. And oh, uh, I okay. completely concur. I think that uh, I think that The Road Warrior is a landmark movie. I think it is one of the greatest action films ever made and one of the purest pieces of kinetic cinema since the silent age. I don't think that you would want to necessarily compare a diehard to a road warrior. So there's what I consider outdoor action and indoor action. Nothing is better than Mad Max 2. When it comes to outdoor action, Fury Road is amazing. And I still think The Road Warrior is a better film. It is a a Western transplanted into a simple but familiar post-apocalyptic world. It has a fascinating anti-hero. It has a bunch of feral weirdos who gradually turn into characters. 
It has some of the most beautifully shot action you'll ever see. I absolutely adore the movie. I love it. I, I don't know why it's only at number six. What's wrong with me? Number six for me is a movie that is a classic and beloved and uh, also recently got a successful sequel, um, at least in my opinion. And that is, of course, Ridley Scott's landmark Blade Runner. This one will come up again in a few moments. So let's just move along to my number five and then yours. All right. I think you said this one didn't make your list, which, again, boggles my mind almost single-handedly created an entire genre or subgenre of films. It is Amy Heckerling's Fast Times Ridgemont High. Absolutely terrific movie and uh, really honest in a way that you got to respect, especially after you see how many people did this wrong over the years. So many of the knockoffs didn't even try. That's yeah. the weird part. You see so many of these boob comedies and teen sex and I got to lose my virginity comedies and so many of them didn't even throw in a casual, well, here's our, here's an attempt at sincerity. Heckerling is so good at treating and, everybody with respect. Every character in that film is treated with respect. Even the ones you wouldn't like if you yeah. knew them, you know, yeah. and in Cameron Crowe's screenplay and source material is great. But yeah, I think Amy Heckerling's uh, directorial touch is just fantastic. Very confident, a little bit raunchy, a little bit sexy, a little bit sad. It's bittersweet. I, I, the music is amazing. I love Fast Times. What's your number five, Drew? Here's one that I'm curious if it shows up anywhere on your list or not. It is technically a movie from an earlier year overseas, but like Road Warrior, an American release in this year, the very best British gangster movie of all time, definitely in the top two or three. I am speaking, of course, of the long Good Friday. Good choice. For some reason, when I did my scan, this one completely just missed my eyeball. So I'm glad you thought of it. Dense, terrific gangster picture and and set at a time where it made sense of English politics in a way that newspaper stories couldn't for me. It really helped me start to understand, obviously one film can't do everything and doesn't try to, but it at least started me realizing that this was a moral quagmire that was not easily broken out of black and white and, and really opened my eyes to the idea that this was even something that was happening in the world. Terrific performances. Helen Mirren is so good in this, and Bob mm -hmm. Hoskins is fantastic god we miss him all right from number five to number four i'm gonna i'm gonna tackle this one first because i i just i want to lay this out there you guys were so nice to me about how i ended up breaking down while talking about this movie and thank you for that because the world according to garp means the world to me and i love that uh that so many of you clearly remember the movie with the same affection or have seen it recently and have fallen in love for the first time Oh, I thought you were going to cry again. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, dude, I think that's absolutely beautiful. I thought that was a very touching moment. You know, uh, you and I have both been very sad, let's put it, when we talked about Robin Williams in the past. And uh, I, I know you don't, and I certainly feel no shame if I were to shed a tear over that beautiful gentleman. I certainly would feel no embarrassment over it. And it was a nice moment. And I agree with you. It did not strike me in that personal place like it did for you. But I do think it is a multi-dimensional, brave, honest, funny, weird film. It seems like it's like uh, just a, a bunch of wild, disparate misfits at some points, but it's not. There's a real method to its madness, and it's a great movie. My number four, Barry Bostwick, Megaforce. <laughs> what? Well, congratulations. I, I, I would not have picked that one, but I think it's a bold choice. I was going to say, my number four is a film you mentioned just a moment ago, and it is Ridley Scott's 
Blade Runner, which is two words, not one. There I'll are, just sum it up and then I'll let you go. Here's the go, thing. Sure. As a 12 or 14 year old, it was a space movie about a guy chasing robots. I barely got the depth or the subtext. I didn't get film noir. I barely got anything beyond just, oh, that's a spaceship. That's cool. Oh, that's, that's Harrison Ford. I like him. I've seen it probably five or six times in the intervening years. And like the cliche goes, every time I see it, it's different. It is so different to me as an adult, even though it still does have that matinee style fun that I loved as a kid. It works on countless levels. And there are several movies that came out this year that we've talked about. uh, Dark Crystal, Tron, this one that are movies of almost breathtaking style, almost suffocating style. And Blade Runner is the one where I think the style and the substance are the same thing. And I think Blade Runner is a movie that that really has, over time, proven to be almost prescient in the way it's made. You know what, man? I think it's important that we give people credit when they do risky shit. Blade Runner is not the natural byproduct of Star Wars. You know, when everybody else is trying to, like, nail down a Star Wars, somebody else, not just Ridley Scott, but his producers, his executive producers, the writers, they said... Sci-fi is popular now. Let us do something dark and interesting and weird and risky. It doesn't matter what genre it is. Even if it's a particularly impressive romantic comedy, it doesn't matter. Give those people credit for not being generic. So my number three was The Road Warrior. Your number three is... Alien Who Likes Candy. I, I don't even know if it would rank in my top five Spielberg films, but it, it might almost feel like... To a young person now, E.T. might feel like old Yeller felt like when I was a kid, you know, like, oh, I get it. It's real sappy and real corny and real, you know, dated. I don't know if it's dated to a young, younger person's eyes. I hope it's not. I think a large part of my affection for this movie is nostalgia. And I also think it's one of the most honest, insightful movies about just like brothers and sisters, you know, school kids wanting someone to hang out with, even if it's a weird alien that you have to keep hidden in a closet. Cause I did that. Who didn't? He was, a, he was an alien from Cuba, but I mean, still, I, I love it. I love it. I know it's kind of like a safe pick, but I, I don't care. It hits me I, in the, it, I, I adore the movie. It just didn't make my top 10 because of how insane this list was. And now I'm dying to know if our number, what, what our number two and number one are. Cause I know what one of them has to be for you based on the fact that you asked to talk about it again later. I can't imagine what the other one is. My number two is, I told you there were two Sidney Lumet films in my list. Okay. My number two is The Verdict. It is that good. And this is not normally, like, if you were to, if I were to make a top ten list of every year of my life, you might find a courtroom, like, four courtroom dramas in that, in that entire list. And nice. this is one of them. It's not necessarily my favorite genre in the world, but rare is it to find... Uh, like you said in our last episode, the combination of an, a screenwriter so on point, a director at the top of his game, an actor who's never been better, and so many other components that it just you know makes you want to go out and make a movie. That's how good the verdict is. It's it's my number one for the year, and it's it's a movie that I have I've gone back to every five to ten years, and I leave that long between viewings because I want to be freshly impressed every time. And it's never failed me. It's I've never gone back, watched the movie and gone, eh, all right. It's got some whiskers on it. Yeah, I get and, it. And, you know, it's like that perfect balance between like 
normal escapist fun. Like I'm going to read a novel. It's a courtroom yeah. drama. It's just a page turner, but it's also a lot more than that. It's beyond, it's a character study. It's a morality play. How it, great is Jack Warden as his buddy? Jack Warden. Let's oh say, I would have watched a spinoff TV series just about Jack Warden in that hat doing research for a lawyer. Like he was yeah. great. And so interesting. James Mason is phenomenal in it. I love the relationship Newman has with the judge in the movie. And I think it's terrific in terms of the ways you watch them both apply pressure back and forth. I don't think we will, cause it'll be too difficult, but if we were to make a top 10 of the decade, the verdict is definitely one film that would make our to both of our top 10 lists. It's that good a movie. Right? It is like, a, so yeah. I mean, you can't call something more higher praised and more eighties all over approved than that. Yeah, it's it's a terrific, terrific movie, and there are few films I have ever seen that are as confident about what they're doing and that land both big commercial punches and big artistic punches with equal ease. So yes. that leaves a number two for me and your number one. All right. I guess I'll go first because I've got the lower ranked one. My number two is Shoot the Moon by Alan Parker. Wow. <laughs> Crater. Yep. Thinking back on our conversation, it doesn't surprise me. But yep. yeah, I did not. Yep. I did not think I did not expect that. Oh, that film, that that film is the best. It's it's such a great movie. And it is a movie that I think is a perfect example of it got released the wrong time and forgotten. And so unfairly, if that movie, if not for Reds, if that movie had come out the December before this, it would have made my top 10 list the year before. It, it's that good. It would have been my in my top 10 list whatever year it came out. And they just happened to put it out in January. And I think it got nailed as a result. But it is as smart about relationships and marriage and the way marriages crumble as any film ever made on the topic. And uh, Albert Finney and Diane Keaton are nuclear strength good, as are every one of the kids in that cast. You know, uh, the, the biggest compliment that I can give this movie is that it took me two days for me to like settle on how I felt about it. Yeah. I couldn't tell if I was left cold because the characters are often aloof and fractious and difficult or that it felt chaotic and unfocused, but is that maybe part of its strength? And it was just all these things that, uh, you know, I write notes as I'm watching the movie, and then as I'm preparing for the show, I look over those notes and kind of, you know, fine tune them or add, oh, don't forget he directed that or da 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 da. And Shoot the Moon is one of the very few movies where I like really sat there as I was writing notes that nobody sees but me and really thought, like, I, I certainly didn't connect to it on an emotional level like Drew did, but. Uh, yeah, I'm impressed. It's a good pick. And of course, that means that my number one pick on the list of nonstop childish picks is John Carpenter's The Thing. I, I actually like that this is the last film we're going to talk about for 1982 because I think it sums it up perfectly. I think 1982, if you want to talk about that year, you have to talk about John Carpenter's The Thing or you're not talking about that year in a serious way. Well, the, because the year, I mean, the year in a, in a way, one of the biggest stories of the movie year is E.T., and one of the side stories of E.T. is it obliterated two damn good science fiction films. Yeah. Nobody's fault. Nobody, you know, no one knew. Not a malicious. But Blade Runner and The Thing were swept away. Instead of, like, feeling a little bit pissy about the box office, we can also look back and go, we got all those movies in one month. Like, E.T., Blade Runner, and The Thing in one month? That's a gift. Now... Here's my thing. I've always been very defensive about the thing because growing up, all I read about it was that it was a disgusting, 
freak show and who would watch such vile, disgusting, blah, 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 blah. Even as a kid, I remember like at 12, 14 years old thinking, don't you get that there are things in nature that creep us out? Like if you saw the inside of a worm, it might creep you out. That's what this movie is tapping into. Like looking into alien creepy things that we don't understand. Like if you found an alien and it was cut open, it would be gross and disturbing. That's what Carpenter is showing us. That's great. It's also it maybe the best film about loss of self and just oh, the fear that goes with that, man. There's so much the loss of self, the instant paranoia of, hey, you're out with 12 people you completely trust. Now you wake up tomorrow morning and I go, one of them is a psycho who's going to kill you. And that's a truth fact. And I leave. Right. Yeah. Like, am I myself? But now you have to worry, is the guy next to me his self? Now, yeah. put all that aside and just look at it like a straight up monster movie. It's in one of the most isolated, secluded, creepy settings, and Carpenter uses that location to the hilt. After all the shit breaks down, watch how he uses that location and all those rooms to just glide his camera across, and we're all looking in every And look at how quickly you learn that base. Uh, hey, directors, if you'd like to learn how to direct a movie and you'd like to understand what geography can do for you, give us a survey. Give us a recce of the area. We want make it natural, make it in the course of the movie, but we need to know the location development just like we need to know character development. And if you were to somehow magically remove 80% of the gore from the thing, it would still be a brilliant horror film because yeah. it's about the loss of self. It's about paranoia. It's about not trusting the man next to you. It's about being stuck somewhere you can't escape from in a tiny building. And if you go outside, you're dead in five minutes anyway. It's like one of those trapped in a box puzzles. You know, you're trapped in this room and how are you going to get out? To me, the gore is just the icing on the cake. It's not just somebody going, well, that's gross. Look at it. What it is, is I'm afraid of what's around the next corner, not only because it's dangerous, but also because it's visually disturbing. It's it's a horror film that works in every way I love horror films to work. In my opinion, it's one of the defining works of the genre. And I think that we were lucky that year to see so many good filmmakers working at such a high level and all of them connecting with the swings they were taking. 1982 was a wonderful year, man. I'm I'm sad to say goodbye to it, and I'm sad to say goodbye to it, not only because the trip through it has been a really wonderful reminder of why it was such a strong year, but also because, Scott, we have to do wacko on the next episode. What the fuck, man? You, you said The Thing was going to be the last movie we mentioned on this episode, and you went and mentioned wacko. <laughs> That's what we're looking forward to. That's the, I want you to taste 83. Taste 83, Scott Weinberg. Taste tell, it. Drew, tell him about the Patreon. <laughs> if you haven't already checked out our Patreon page, you can at patreon.com. And remember, your support is what helps grow this show. If you listen to us and you enjoy the show, please share it with other people. Trap them in an automobile at some point and make them listen to the show or take them somewhere isolated that they can't run from and play it for them. It yes. helps. Trust me. Much uh, like I, the time Drew put me in a rental car and showed me a screener disc of a Serbian film, that's what you should also do with 80s all over. Exactly. exactly that is exactly. a true fact that he did that. Exactly like that. Uh, guys, your help and support has grown the show uh, over the last couple of years. I can't believe we have now finished three 
years of this decade. We are looking forward to finishing the last seven, to growing the show as we do so. Thank you so much for listening. Scott, thank you for your time. Bobby, thank you for building a phenomenal show around us each and every week. I will be back as soon as I have suffered through January of 1983. Oi! Oi!